Hello, hello, darling. How are you? Hello, gorgeous. I'm wonderful. I had some major life events yesterday, so. Yeah, you fucking did. (laughs) It's been very interesting. So, surprise, Johnny proposed to me yesterday. Yay! I know. At our favorite place in the world, Alamo Draft House. (laughs) Ayo. Fuck yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Uh, I was not expecting it. No, because you've been on the uh, I'm never getting married train as long as I know you. I know. That's kind of my jam. To be fair, Johnny knows me very well. And he was like, if you don't actually want to do the paperwork to do this, I get it. But like, essentially, you're my wife. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, get that tax break. Come on. Right? I was like, isn't that why everyone else does it? That's That's the thing. That's the perk. Yeah. There you go. See, when you sent me the video of it, (laughs) so you know those inflatable things at, like, car lots? There was three of them at the Alamo Draft House, apparently, and that's A.B. and Johnny were, like, mimicking the poses, and that's when Johnny decided to propose, and... Amy sent me the video, except that that was the loudest fucking thing. The, like, wind machines to keep them propped up is the loudest fucking thing ever. So I could only hear some of the proposal. But I did hear that he was like, you don't have to do the paperwork. If you don't he knows I hate paperwork. That's fair. I mean, I get it. Yeah, I'm literally dancing like one of the, which I get this from Family Guy, the wacky waving inflatable arm flailing tube man. Yes. Just like what I describe them as. And I'm dancing like that. And then all of a sudden he's on his knees and I'm like, wait, am I the only one dancing like these stupid inflatable men, which apparently are called air dancers, I guess is the technical term. Are they? Yeah. The more you know. The more you know. Yeah. And then he proposed to me. We had gone to see The Birdcage, uh, which is one of our favorite movies. I know you love that movie too. Fuck yeah. Yeah. They had a midday showing of The Birdcage. So we saw that. And then, yeah, everybody was there. And he was like, oh, let's just take a picture in front of this new like display for its for Jordan Peele's new alien movie, which I'm super fucking excited about. That's an interesting display for an alien movie. Yes. Obviously it has something to do with the plot. Uh, yeah, I would imagine. And it's not just completely random. <laughs> yes. So yeah, he knows me well. And I my quote literally from the end, if you didn't hear it, is It's like Monday morning. I'm so startled right now because I just wasn't (laughs) expecting it. I did hear that. And I was like, wait, this like people are like in business meetings right now. And I'm like, what is happening? Well, I'm so happy for you, my love. Thank you. I couldn't be happier. Ah. Thank you. I know Monique is amazing. And she like immediately sent me a gift of some sort of alcoholic libation, I believe. Yes, that you're getting today, correct? That I'm getting today, yes. Yeah. Thank you, darling. Of course. She's so lovely. It's the least I could do. I'm so happy for you. You have to have a fucking party. I don't even give a fuck if it's wedding. You have to have a party. Oh, definitely. And we got to go dress shopping. I don't give a fuck if it's wedding dress, just like that you look great. I'm not upset about that. I can get on board with that. Yeah. It's your shit. You do whatever the fuck you want. But get that tax break. Exactly. Have him do the paperwork. Ooh, I like that. (laughs) I'm never going to say no to not having to do paperwork. Well, congratulations, my love. Thank you. You had a much more eventful Monday than I did. I replaced a bookcase and built it by myself. (gasps) Wait, that's fun too. I like that. Yeah, I wasn't upset about it. 
We built a daybed this week. Oh, shit. So I did some construction-y type things, too. Mm. I replaced the torture couch that was in my in my living room, <laughs> which you had the misfortune of having to sleep on one time. And it's awful. It's so uncomfortable. I mean, I'd slept on it one time. Nico has slept on it for, like, months at a time. That sucks. Yes. I don't know how. There you go. But, yeah, I introduced Johnny to daybeds, which he had not heard of daybeds before. And he was describing his perfect couch to me. And I was like, I mean, you're basically just describing a day bed. That's a day bed. Yeah. And he was like, wait, what's that? And I was like, ooh, look up day beds. Mm-hmm. And then we got a day bed for the living room. Amazing. Because that's the life I want to live. Of course. There's just something very fulfilling about building a thing and seeing it done. Because I feel so much of my life is very, you don't necessarily immediately see the fruits of your labor. It's very true. And it can feel like a fool's errand for a lot of things <laughs> that I that I have committed myself to. So when you you know you have a box with shit and then you finish it and it looks like it does on the front of the box, you're like, fuck yeah, look at that. I did that. I did that. <laughs> I finished that. Usually it goes to my head and then I think I can do way more than I can. I'm like, I could build a house if I really wanted to. And it's like, no, no, you can't. no, you can't. That's ambitious. No, I've never thought that ever. How'd your bookcase turn out, though? Turn out nice? Looks great. To be fair, though, I do have the shelf that did cave in houses my brick from in and of itself. Oh, my God. So the brick was fine. It's a fucking brick. But it is a considerable amount of weight because it is legitimately a brick. So that was the one that was like, girl, come on. Uh, I mean, but it was it was several years that it was on there. So and the I don't do any sort of construction ever. So I don't even know what it's called, but the little like things that you put in to like hold up the shelf, whatever the fuck that's called, they were plastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's a matter of time. These are metal. So I feel much more secure in that situation. Oh, definitely. That one's going to last you a while. Yeah, I think so. It's like, nice. I always love building things. Yeah. You're right. It's a very, it's a very satisfying sense of accomplishment. The only thing more satisfying than building something is building something that the instructions say requires two people to build and you do it by yourself. You're like, fuck that. Do I need two people? You're like, I'm sorry. I'm Monique motherfucking Sanchez. So I can do whatever the fuck I want and I can build this by myself. It's like, you're better than two people. You're Monique. Come on. (laughs) I'm two people in one. Thank you. I always feel accomplished when the instructions don't have like written instructions and it's just pictorial like fucking ikea shit Mm. because that for some reason really trips me up i like really want to read how i'm supposed to fit pieces together in addition to having the pictures so when it doesn't have that and i just like can manage to break down the hieroglyphics of this situation Mm -hmm. i'm like oh yeah i'm amazing i've actually never bought furniture from ikea I know, because every time I found something that I liked that was reasonably priced, the shipping was more than the item. And I was like, that's fucking stupid. So then I wouldn't buy it. Not worth it. No. But yeah, no. So like, I'll just get something that costs less than the shipping and <laughs> and the item, but it's more than the item. And just, you know, build it at home. Is this like home improvement? What the fuck is this fucking podcast turned into? I know, right? <laughs> I was like, we never do this. We're never just like randomly building things. No, I literally, the last time I did, I think it was five fucking years ago with the book, the bookcase, the first bookcase. <laughs> I love that so much. Uh, I have been the designated person to put things together for my mother for basically my whole childhood. Mm. My mom 
knew I was great at that and knew I loved to do that shit. So anytime she got something that needed to be built, she would literally be like, Amy, I have a job for you. And then I would put it all together. I would always do it for like ex-boyfriends. I'd like buy them shit. And then the box would just like live there. And I, so I would build it because I'm like, it's not going to get fucking done if I don't do it. So there you go. You want something done right? You got to do it yourself. Goddamn right. We're so crafty. We're so handy now, Monique. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. I don't own like any like power tools or anything like that. That's too intimidating for me. I don't know how to use those. <gasps> oh my God. No, they're great. No, I, have, I don't. At least like a screw gun. You don't have a screw gun even? No. Damn. Now I'm really impressed because I know you put this whole thing together with like fucking screwdrivers and Allen, Allen wrenches. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All screwdrivers and hammers. Nicely done. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Of course. Now, do you have a spooky, creepy, weird, what the fuck paranormal story to tell me that maybe you got from a book on your new bookcase or? <laughs> I actually, I didn't get it from a book on my new bookcase, but, uh, I, I don't have one. I actually have two. What? I have two stories for you. Yeah, because the story I wanted to do was on the short side, and I was like, I can't, like, chip them on this. So you're getting two stories, babies. Yeah, but there's a theme, so don't worry about it. I love it, Monique. Yes. Going above and beyond this week. Extra credit. <laughs> well, you know, you did that one time where you had, like, two stories and, like, an intermission. I did. Mike the Headless Chicken. It was too weird. That's right. The Headless Chicken. Couldn't get over that. See, I fucking remember I remember that shit. So my sources are the Spooked Podcast, which is wonderful if you've never heard it, and the Unfictional Podcast. So story number one. It was a beautiful, warm, sunny Saturday afternoon, the type that Andrea would normally spend with her friends and boyfriend. So Andrea was beyond disappointed when her parents told her she couldn't go out because she had to stay and watch her two-year-old little sister, Tammy, while her parents ran errands. Annoyed and alone and on babysitting duty, Andrea called her friends to tell them that she couldn't go out. But they told her that they didn't mind going over to her place. So at one o'clock, Wendy, Barry, and Andrea's boyfriend, Gerald, arrived at Andrea's house. Even though Andrea was supposed to be watching her little sister, the teenager tended to her friends in the living room and left the infant to her own devices in the other room. Andrea remembered that as soon as the gang sat down in the living room, Wendy took out her Ouija board. Uh, uh Uh-huh. Nope. But I get it. It's like one o'clock in the afternoon. You're like, ah. It's sunny out. What could possibly happen? Ghosts only exist in the nighttime. Don't you know? (laughs) Amateur hour. No. Amateur hour. You're about to fuck up. Dude. Andrea had never seen a Ouija board and had no idea what it was. Wendy quickly explained the game and volunteered to be the one to ask the board the questions and said that people with a good relationship should be the ones playing on the board because the energy would be better. Andrea and Gerald were the only couple in the room, and while they had only been dating for a few weeks, they were happy and figured that they had good energy flow between them, so Andrea suggested that she and Gerald play on the board. The couple sat facing each other at the dining room table with the board between them. They put their fingers on the planchette located in the middle of the board, and Wendy asked if there was a spirit on the board, and the planchette started moving. And Andrea remembers initially the planchette moving very slowly, almost as if the spirit was trying to figure out how to work the planchette and use these kids to get its message across. The planchette slowly moved around the board, then went straight up to yes. There was a spirit on the board. So Wendy asked the spirit what was its name, and it spelled out L-U-C-I-F-E-R, Lucifer. No, 
no, no, no, no, no. And clearly Wendy and I are not the same person because if I'm playing a fucking Ouija board and I ask the name and Lucifer gets spelled out, the game is getting close and I'm burning the shit out of that fucking board. Like, goodbye. This is, this is done. Yes. Burn it down. What do I say, Monique? Burn it down. We don't need no water. Let this motherfucker burn. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> burn, motherfucker, burn. Yes. <laughs> but Wendy is clearly a honey badger because she doesn't give a shit. <laughs> she calls out the board and she calls out the spirit and is like, this is bullshit. I don't believe that you're Lucifer. Who are you really? And the board spells out Seth. Then Wendy starts asking the types of questions that you usually ask when you're making contact with a Ouija board. When did you live? The third century. Where did you live? Greece. Using the board, the spirit told them that he found his wife in bed with another man and in a violent, jealous rage had killed both of them. And the whole time this story is happening, Andrea said that she felt an energy coursing through her body, that while it was happening, she didn't really think of it, but that she remembered it upon reflection. So the spirit is talking about murdering his wife and her lover. So Andrea's like, we clearly have a violent spirit on our hands. Do we even want to keep this conversation going? What are we gaining from this? Then Wendy asked, do you have any messages for anyone here? And the planchette bolted to yes. And it spelled out A-N-D-Y, which was Andrea's nickname. So Andrea, understandably, is freaked out because this was no longer information about Seth. This was a personal message for Andrea. And the board spelled out T-I-L-E-S-T-O-P, which was either tiles top or tile stop. Either way, the group didn't understand the message, and they told the entity as much. Then it spelled out T-A-M-M-I-C-H-O-K-E, Tammy Choke. No, full body chills. No, 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 no. Tammy was Andrea's two-year-old little sister (gasps) that she was supposed to be babysitting, but had left her alone in the other room to hang out with her friends and her boyfriend. As soon as that message appeared, a chill ran down Andrea's spine. And then the board spelled out the whole message again. No tile. Stop. Tammy choke. The group immediately... I just gave myself chills. I like have had just waves of back-to-back chills right now. What the fuck? The group immediately dropped the board and ran into the other room to check in on Tammy. They found the infant in the closet with their mother's mahjong set and two mahjong tiles in her mouth. One of the tiles came right out, and the other, Andrea had to stick her finger down Tammy's throat to pop the other one out, but the infant was fine, and Andrea picked up her baby sister and hugged her like she had never hugged her before. The group ended their hangout pretty quickly after that, and even though the board ended up saving her sister's life, Andrea never used a Ouija board again. That is bananas. Girl. What? Like, I'm just literally speechless and flabbergasted right now. Yeah. That definitely couldn't have been Lucifer, because, like, if so, he was, like, really doing a good deed on that. You're like, fuck the baby. Yeah, right? Right? So that was our, our first our first Ouija story. That was amazing already. Girl, right? Fuck. More Ouija stories? Another one. We got another one. This is our second one. Two Ouija stories. You're welcome. Because I really liked the first one, but it was a real short story, so I'm like, I can't, I can't chip you guys, so... Get a second story. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Two for the price of one. I love it. Happy Juneteenth. That just happened. Yeah. Fuck yeah. So story number two. It was the 90s and there was a combination birthday party going away party taking place at an old craftsman house in Hollywood. 
The party featured a hodgepodge of various people, including Christy, the birthday girl, her boyfriend Danny, who was a glam rocker, Christy's friend Debbie, and their friend Mark, a Frenchman. So the party's going on, but it's kind of lame, and it's not really going anywhere. And Mark says, quote, In France, when we had a party, the idea was to drink as much as you can, as fast as you can, and then put on James Brown's sex machine, which I'm like, I want to be at this fucking party. That sounds amazing. That sounds like an amazing party. (laughs) Unfortunately, there was no James Brown available that night, so we had to think of something else, end quote. So Mark wandered around the house and wandered into the dining room and found an armoire with a bunch of crystal glasses. And Mark thought, quote, there's nothing else going on here tonight. Why don't we do a seance? End quote. James Brown seance? Like, eh, all right, sure. I mean, it's totally the same. They're super interchangeable. Yeah, of course. I see how you <laughs> went from one to the other. I get it. Okay. Totally makes sense. It's a logical leap. Absolutely. Where Mark was from in France, you couldn't just pick up a Ouija board at your local toy store, so they would improvise their own spirit boards by lining up Scrabble letters and cutting up a piece of paper with one saying yes and the other saying no. Then they would turn a glass upside down and put their fingers on the top, and then they'd concentrate really hard. Christy and Debbie were down to play. They thought that it would be something fun to do. While Debbie had played the Ouija board a couple times in high school, nothing had really happened, and neither woman really took it seriously. Christy said, quote, I mean, I'm a spiritualist, like I believe in God, but I don't believe in Ouija boards. I wasn't taking it seriously. I don't believe in that type of thing at all, end quote. So Mark cut out a bunch of letters to create an alphabet and put them around in a circle, put out one piece of paper that said yes and one that said no. They lit some candles and Mark grabbed a crystal glass with a stem, turned it upside down, and Mark, Christy, Debbie, and another person from the party put their fingertips on the bottom of the stem and closed their eyes as the room quieted down. And after a short amount of time, Mark recalls that it was uncanny how quickly it started, but the glass started to move. And Debbie remembered her hair standing up and having a thrilling feeling at the movement. Mark said, quote, You have the sensation that something is connecting with the glass and then trying to find its bearings. It's very distinctive, end quote. After a little while, the glass started to find a flow and a rhythm, and started moving in repeated figure eights. And as is usually the case, the skeptics in the room watching are calling total bullshit and accusing different people of moving the glass, but everyone insists that they weren't. Mark said, quote, A good way to take care of the skeptics is to command the glass to do geometric forms. For example, I would tell the glass to spin in a circle. You tell the glass to go faster and faster and faster. And let me tell you, that thing flies. It's so fast. You cannot coordinate people who don't know each other and have not rehearsed this and get a glass to move this fast. It's impossible. At that point, everybody went, huh, what's going on? End quote. So now it's become clear that something other than the four with their hands on the glass are moving it. Then one of them asks, who's here? And the glass starts going back and forth between the letters K-E-K-E. And everybody's like, who's Kiki? And that's when Christy who was at the head of the table, froze. Mark said, quote, I'd never seen her like that. And she looked down at the table and she said, I know who's here, end quote. Several years earlier, Christy had been dating a guy named Brian. The two had dated for two and a half years and Brian was her first love. He was funny and handsome, charismatic with a million dollar smile and had the ability to draw in anyone who walked in a room. 
What people didn't realize was that Brian was actually very lonely and suffered from depression and had attempted to take his life multiple times. He was put in a mental hospital one December and was put on suicide watch. When Christmas came, Christy wasn't there and she wasn't able to speak with him. Even though Brian was supposed to be under close supervision, he hanged himself in his room with his belt. No! hmm Brian meant the world to Christy. To this day, Christy can't look at pictures of Brian because it breaks her heart. So that night, when the board spelled out Kiki, the pet name Brian called Christy in private, Christy knew that it was him. I would be so fucked up by this. Like, I would literally, I literally would be like, we're done. Like, close this. I'm out. I got to leave. Like, no, 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 no. Absolutely not. Yes. Yes. I know. Totally same. I'd be like, I'm, I can't. I can't do this. I'm sorry. I can't. Mm-mm. They asked if Brian was in heaven. The glass answered no. Are you in hell? The glass answered no. Then they asked if he was in some kind of in-between place, and it said yes. When they asked how long he was going to be there, it said 27, which was the age he was when he'd killed himself. Interesting. Yeah. So Christy gets up and goes to the bathroom, and the glass stops moving. And I'm also probably guessing she probably needed like a second because this is the heaviest, craziest fucking shit ever. Yeah. And it's happening in front of a bunch of people, which I would not like at all. And I would, no, need to like separate myself. 10,000%. And not to mention, it's this girl's fucking birthday. I forgot that part of the story. No. Like part of this birthday is her, it's her birthday. It's a going away party for someone else. And it's her birthday. Oh, no. Even if you love this person, I'd be like, this is a fucked up birthday gift. I don't want any part of this. Thank you. Dude. (sighs) Christy gets up and goes to the bathroom and the glass stops moving. So the rest of the group asks where the spirit went and if it followed Christy into the bathroom. And the glass answers yes. And they're like, okay, if you were in there with her, what color underwear was she wearing? And it's spelled out white. And sure enough... Christy was wearing white underwear. Oh, perf ghost. All right, get out of the bathroom. The lady wants her privacy. <laughs> Dude, speaking of James Brown, didn't he fucking like film women in the bathroom? Wasn't he one of those? Was he? I'm like 90% sure. Probably. And his, his mugshot is insane. It's like Nick Nolte level insane. Really? Girl, it's fucking nuts. Wait, I I kind of need to look at this right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's pretty wild. Yeah. Not his finest moment, clearly. No, definitely not. So during this whole ordeal, Christy's current boyfriend, Danny, is standing behind her. He's like, I can't compete with this ghost. Come on. Well, he's this glam rock, like too cool for school guy. And he's not buying any of this. And he says that this whole thing is bullshit. And he says it out loud. He says, this is bullshit. At that, the glass starts to move without having been asked a question, which is highly, highly, highly unusual. Yeah. You pissed off the spirit. And the glass spells out Y-O-U-F-U-C-K. Yep. (laughs) Yep. That sounds about right. Yeah. At which point, Chrissy's boyfriend replies, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) And the glass spells D-A-N-I, Danny, which is Chrissy's boyfriend's name, and F-U-C-K. And it kept going back and forth, repeatedly spelling D-A-N-I-F-U-C-K. Don't 
antagonize the spirits. Dude, he's moving shit from another fucking realm. What the fuck? Literally. Like, what is wrong with you? Mark said, quote, Now, what's interesting here is that when you have to say something like motherfucker and you're speaking through a crystal glass as a spiritual entity, it takes a long time to spell M-O, et cetera, et cetera, end quote. (laughs) I mean, I feel like that's how I would use the afterlife, would be like spelling out motherfucker and piece of shit. A (laughs) hundred percent. My first thought was like, okay, good. I'm glad we can still say fuck in the afterlife. That's great. That's what I needed to know. So Danny's getting pissed, and it appears that the ghost of Christy's ex-boyfriend is also getting pissed and picking a fight with Christy's current boyfriend. Mark said, quote, This is surreal that these two are having a cockfight in two different dimensions. End quote. I love that so much. <laughs> I know. I was like, um, that's definitely going in this fucking story. Yes. And Danny, who was a hothead, got really upset and was like, fuck this, and walked out of the party. Meanwhile, the glass repeatedly spelled out, I love you, and then, I'm sorry. Oh, that's so heartbreaking. I know. Like, Mm. so all this shit goes down, and Christy is just frozen. Her dead ex-boyfriend, who she still misses and isn't exactly over, came through, started a fight with her current boyfriend, who stormed off in a huff. And not to mention, again, it's this poor girl's fucking birthday when all of this shit goes down. So, you know, Mark and everyone kind of, like, reads the room, and they're like, ah, we should probably, like, shut this shit down. So they finally say goodbye and close the game, and Mark remembers that when he and Debbie drove home together, they did so in total silence because they were just in complete shock of everything that had gone down. Debbie said, quote, it definitely changed the way I see things, and I'm the biggest skeptic. I wouldn't believe the story if I weren't there, and I'm sure many people won't believe me, but it happened. End quote. Christy said, quote, I know it sounds crazy, but I believe he was talking to us, to me. End quote. Mark ended the story saying, quote, I think the beauty of this story is not that it is a ghost story. It's that it's a love story. That someone was able to reach beyond the divide and tell someone for the last time, I love you. Even Romeo and Juliet didn't get that. End quote. Oh! And those are the crazy Ouija board stories of Andrea and Christy. I loved that so much. I know. That last one was really sweet, actually. Yeah. It was sweet, but it was also like, fuck you, motherfucker. It's sweet, but also I don't want that to happen to me. I'm totally good. Thanks. No. That being said, that's the kind of birthday I want to get invited to by the way. Girl, same. Yeah, I'm here for it. I don't want that to be my birthday. I don't want that to happen to me. But if I get invited <laughs> to that birthday party, I'm going to be like, best birthday party ever. 10,000 fucking percent. I would love to fucking play a Ouija board and have have it spell up motherfucker and fuck you. Right? I'd be like, this is, a, even if it's to me, I'd be like, this is amazing. <laughs> I'd be like, did we just become best friends? Hi, spirit. I was like, I think so. Uh That was great. I loved having two stories this week. I feel so special. Thank you. I got you. Those were good, too. That was like chills on chills on chills. Yeah. I mean, they're both so fucking nuts. And the, like, specificity of it, you know? And, like, even one was like, "Um, girl, your sister's fucking choking in the next room, so, like, get your shit together. Literally fucking watching out for you. That's the real babysitter. Somebody pay this ghost. (laughs) He's doing your job for you. You're slacking off in the other room. Ghost babysitter. Yes. 
Yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you for both of those. Sure. I got you. Above and beyond this week. You know, I try. I try. And you succeed. <laughs> Thank you. Even though I'm not saying try. God damn it. <laughs> so after after my, my Ouija craziness, you got some crazy true crime? I have some crazy true crime. I am going to do a warning for everybody. Trigger warning. Thank you. Yep. I try to keep it a little light on details, but definitely horrifying. So brace yourselves. Cool. And we have Johnny to thank for ah, his- Of course. He always has the super fucked up ones because he lives on Reddit. <laughs> so I don't know if he got this from Reddit. He just sent me the Wikipedia article on this. And I was like, I hadn't heard of this. And this is fucking crazy. Mm. So thank you, Johnny, for my story this week. Sources, medium.com, dailymail.co.uk, thefreelibrary.com, murderpedia.org, wikipedia.com, and the show Joe Frost on Killer Kids, which is like a British show. Mm -hmm. So Sharon Louise Carr was born in Belize on December 21st, 1979. Sharon was one of four children by three fathers and grew up never knowing who her biological father was. She was raised by her mother and stepfather in a poverty-stricken environment. Her stepfather was a violent alcoholic, and her mother was known to be callous with an explosive temper, which led to a dysfunctional childhood. Ugh. Yeah, right out the gate. Not great. Yeah. Fuck. The family eventually relocated to the town of Camberley in Surrey, England in 1986, and initially things were going well. Sharon joined the basketball team at school and was a promising student who teachers described as polite, helpful, and charming. Eventually, Sharon's stepfather tried to end the relationship with her mother, but when he told her he was ending things, Sharon's mother poured boiling fat over him. Holy shit! Yes. That's one way to do it. Yeah. That's a gross overreaction, I'm going to say. I'm going to go out on a limb. Just break up. It sucks, but like, just break up. Just break up. People do it every second of every day. It's fine. You don't need to, you know, fry a guy because of that. That's not necessary. Mm. By the way, Sharon witnessed this whole thing happening. Oh, fuck. How old is she when this happens? It's unclear how old she is during this time, but I'm going to assume she's no more than, I would say, probably like eight at the most. (gasps) I think is a a good estimate. That's a good age to get that trauma, like, Good and solidified. Yep. Get it in there real deep in your brain. Mm-hmm. Thanks, mom. Yeah, that's traumatic as fuck from any fucking age. Literally, you could, that could happen in front of me now and I would never recover from that. So yeah, absolutely. You're never prepared for that, let alone as a child. Sharon's mother and stepfather were both hospitalized after the incident for the burns they sustained and her mother was charged with assault. Afterwards, her stepfather said one of the most disturbing things about the incident was the calm on Sharon's face when it happened. According to him, she showed absolutely no emotion. Yeah. Yikes. Which, like, part of me was like, okay, maybe that was just, like, shock and, like, your body shutting down, but... Or she's, like, a psychopath, sociopath person. Also possible. Yes. Mm. After this incident, the once promising student became disruptive and attention-seeking and had problems relating to authority. Yeah, that's called fucking trauma. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think she handled it well. Who the fuck among us is going to handle that well? It's not going to be me. Tell you that. No! I would be disruptive and attention-seeking if that happened in front of me. Absolutely the fuck not. 
1990, one of her teachers at Cordwallis Junior School contacted social services about her behavior, and she was briefly placed in foster care, but was returned home about a month later. Sharon's mother was also part of the voodoo culture, and Sharon was raised believing that this had power and could affect her life. She adopted these superstitions and rituals and believed that she could gain power over others by ritualistically killing animals. Pets in her neighborhood were known to have gone missing, and her next-door neighbor's dog was found decapitated. And a friend once suggested, I don't know if this is true, I could not find any sort of verification of this, that she had even gone so far as to fry live hamsters. <gasps> yes. Yes. Monique's reaction is correct. I My jaw's been on the floor for all of this. Yes. After the frying of the stepfather incident, it would not actually surprise me that much, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, sure. But again, that's just a somebody said thing. Mm-hmm. At 11 years old, Sharon started smoking cannabis, which introduced her to the wrong kind of crowd and carrying weapons in her school bag. Jesus. Yeah. That's bold. That's a decision that you're making. That's a lot. Yes. Mm-hmm. Her fellow students said that she was a sociable girl who preferred the company of older boys and that she occasionally showed flashes of aggression. But even though she was young, Sharon had already gained an intimidating reputation and was feared by her neighbors. She had no real parental control and was allowed to roam free around the neighborhood without supervision. In nearby Hockley, 18-year-old Katie Ratcliffe was in the early stages of a blossoming career as a hairdresser. Almost the complete antithesis of Sharon, Katie was a bubbly person with lots of friends and was considered part of the family at the salon where she worked. Katie still had her whole life ahead of her when on June 6, 1992, she and her best friend went out to a nightclub in Camberley called Ragamuffins. Again, very aggressive New York. Settle down. Not necessary. Katie and her boyfriend had recently broken up and she had wanted to go out to take her mind off of it. The girls enjoyed a night of dancing until the club closed before they headed home. In the early hours on the morning of June 7th, Katie started to walk home from the club, but never made it back. Instead, she was randomly attacked by 12-year-old Sharon Carr, whom she had never met before. And how old is, how old is, uh, is Katie? 18. What the fuck? Can you imagine that? No! Literally, no one can imagine the situation. It happened so fucking rarely. Like, I feel like the word that kept coming up when people described this case was, like, unique. Because Mm -hmm. for a woman to kill another woman, already kind of not common. Mm -hmm. For a female child to kill another female, super odd. For them to kill an adult, like, unfucking heard of, basically. This is fucking crazy. Crazy. And like 12 years old. Like, I was just like bopping around to fucking Spice Girls and like painting my nails. I was not like, I'm going to murder an 18-year-old. No. I was playing with Barbie all day, every day. Right? Love that bitch. Which, by the way, have you seen the stills from the Barbie movie? I have. I don't know what the fuck is happening in the Barbie movie, but color me intrigued. Yeah, I'm intrigued. I'm down for it. Let's go to Alamo Draft House and watch Barbie when it comes out. Oh my God. I'm down. I'm so down. Of course. Done. It's done. Yay! Date night. Yes. No, I was playing with Barbie. I was not out like at least two in the morning when a club closes, depending on where you are. Let's say at least two. Fucking 12 years old at two in the morning, 
scoping to like murder people. Where the fuck is this chick's mother? Also, this mother's like nuts. We know that. Yeah. She's not nailing it. Is she just cool with her daughter's like just out roaming, stalking people? Yeah. She literally has like no parental supervision. She just does whatever she wants. Like all the neighbors are terrified of her. Yeah. And uh, like, okay. Yes, sometimes kids kill other kids. Generally, it's people they fucking know, though. Like, it's not a random woman on the street. It's so, again, unique. Like, it's so fucking unheard of that this happens. It's actually insane. Well, also, whenever I've, like, read about kids killing other kids, it's usually someone who's smaller than them. Yes! Not a fucking 18-year-old. Yes! And, like, she, I mean, she was, like, a normal-sized 18-year-old. It's not like she was particularly, like petite that I read or anything. They said she weighed about 120 pounds. Like she's yeah. For a 12 year old. That's fucking nuts. Fucking nuts. A 12 year old could take me on. No problem. Like we're literally the same (laughs) size, but uh, yes. I think you put up a good fight at least. I would try. I'm feisty at least. Yeah. At 7am the next morning, Katie's half naked body was found by a cemetery wall three miles away in Farnborough. She'd been brutally stabbed 32 times with a six and a half inch knife. Yes. And some of the wounds were so deep that they went completely through her body and the knife like came out the other side. Insane, Monique. Insane. I couldn't handle the story. I am shooketh. What the fuck? Girl, it's going to get worse for a second. Everybody brace yourself. Like right now? Yeah, like right now. Okay. Okay. She'd been stabbed in the heart, ribs, and genitalia, and her breasts had been mutilated, although they later determined that there was no evidence of sexual assault. But yes. And again, that's like the euphemistic way I'm putting that because that uh-huh. it, it's horrifying if you say it any other way, basically. Like actually read it. Yeah. Yes. But yes, like so fucking brutal, so fucking horrifying, like so violent. Police described the brutal attack as frenzied and said it went way beyond the needs of just killing somebody. Like, whoever did this enjoyed doing this and, like, got off on this 100%. Yeah, that's one of those things that, like, if you see it, like, as a cop, you're like, okay, this has to be someone they know. It's like a a murder of passion because it's literal overkill. Yes. Yes. Like, strangers don't do that. No. And strange 12-year-old girls? Like, no. That's not their fucking M.O. No. As you can imagine, Katie's parents were devastated when they heard the news of their daughter's death. Hampshire police handled the investigation, and due to the frenzied and seemingly sexual nature of the attack, as well as the fact that Katie's body had been dragged from the road to the cemetery wall, they believed that Katie had been attacked by a man, most likely in his 30s, who had been at the club that night. The idea that this brutal stabbing had actually been committed by a 12-year-old girl seemed completely outside the realm of possibility. I mean, I get that. Yeah. It would never occur to me either. I'd be like, yeah, 100% a guy did this. Like, there's no, who else would do this? Right. And then she's also half naked too? Yes. Like, red flag. And Yeah. Yeah, you're like, oh, okay. You know, we've seen this kind of shit before, unfortunately. I've watched enough true crime shows and listened to enough podcasts that I know what the fuck is up here. But surprise, no, you fucking don't. <laughs> Police tracked down men from the club and investigated various leads trying to find Katie's killer, but the case eventually went cold. After Katie's murder, Sharon returned to her daily life and for two years continued on as though nothing had happened. Then, on June 7th, 1994, 
two years to the day after Katie Ratcliffe's murder, Sharon attacked 13-year-old Anne-Marie Clifford, a fellow student at Collingwood College Comprehensive School. And like, during school hours. Yes, I feel this needs to be said. Who the fuck are the teachers? In class, I guess. I don't know. Sharon lured the girl to the school's bathroom by telling her that she had lost a pound coin and Anne-Marie was likely too afraid to tell her no. Once Sharon had cornered the girl in the bathroom, Sharon stabbed her in the back with a four-inch knife and punctured her lung. Why the fuck? This is the, the 90s, you said? 94, yeah. Yeah, so I guess they're probably not... It's also the UK, so they don't really do the metal detector thing in school, I don't think. No. No. Also, like, it's a girl's school. Like, I, don't, I, just, I feel like you just don't expect this. Who could expect this? I mean, this is fucking nuts. Bananas! The attack would have likely continued, but five students entered the bathroom shortly after Anne-Marie was stabbed and intervened. They immediately notified teachers who called the police. There was no apparent reason for the attack on Anne-Marie Clifford, and although she survived, she was deeply traumatized afterwards. Obviously. Yeah, no fucking shit. Yeah. She said that when she looked up at her attacker, Sharon was juggling the knife from hand to hand and smiling down at her. Fucked. So fucked. Monique, yes. Jaws on the floor. I was like, Monique's facial expression, you can't see it, but is correct, yes. Physically and mentally scarred from the ordeal, Anne-Marie suffered from frequent nightmares and was terrified that Sharon would come back to kill her. Fortunately, Anne-Marie had a loving family who supported her through her recovery. After the attack, 14-year-old Sharon Carr was immediately arrested and sent to an assessment center to await trial. But not even her arrest could stop her violent outburst. Because while she was there, she tried to strangle not one, but two members of the staff. Girl. What the fuck? Sharon Carr was charged with two counts of actual bodily harm for her attack on Anne-Marie and was convicted in December 1994. She was initially held in various psychiatric units, but continued to regularly assault other women. So in September 1995, she was finally transferred to Bullwood Hall Young Offenders Institution, where they believed it would be easier to manage her aggressive and sexualized behavior. While at Bullwood, staff members overheard Sharon talking on the phone to her friends and family about killing Katie Ratcliffe. Since Katie's murder had remained unsolved despite four years of intensive investigation by police, the staff immediately notified police who brought her in for questioning. What kind of fucking phone call is that? Right? The audacity. How are you? What's up? Just killed this 18-year-old when I was 12. You know, nothing much. How about you? Just reminiscing on, you know, the good old days. Whatever. Like, no. What? Also, all that shit's recorded. Like, you should know all that shit's recorded. Don't fucking say that shit. On the fucking recorded call. I mean, at least as a kid, and they're kind of stupid. That's true. That's true. Thank God, because at least we're finding this shit out. Right? Like, thank you. Also, I feel like we know this with killers. Like, they love to fucking run their mouth. They just love, they don't want it to go unknown that they did this shit. I actually saw another Broadway play over the weekend. Oh my God. I love you. You're so cultured. You're so fancy. <laughs> I just go to Alamo Draft House. It was more because I'm in love with Sam Rockwell. Oh. He is amazing. He's amazing. And he's in this uh, David Mamet play. How was it? Uh, American Buffalo. It's great. The premise is that this guy, Lawrence Fishburne's character, because it's Lawrence Fishburne, Darren Chris, and Sam Rockwell. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. He has a pawn shop and this guy, uh, he has like a buffalo nickel and the guy ends up paying him 90 bucks for it. But then he gets it in his head that that nickel was probably worth like five times the amount. So they like decide that they're going to like go and like steal it back from the guy. It's very, like, harebrained scheme. I love that. But 
the people I went with, I mentioned that I have this podcast, you know, this true crime podcast. And they're like, oh, you know, I can't listen to that. And I'm like, the thing is, is that criminals are fucking stupid. They're really dumb and they don't know how to shut the fuck up. And then like at intermission, like as, as the show is going on and they're doing all this, like she keeps like nudging me be like, they're stupid. I'm like, yes, this is a pattern. They don't know how to shut the fuck up. They're fucking stupid. <laughs> like this, like you're in a fucking psych ward and having a fucking phone call with someone Wait, you with your family. And you're like, oh, by the way, I totally killed this chick randomly. Right? Amateur hour. You always fucking say. Amateur hour. Fucking amateur hour. Yeah. Why are you so bad at this? Just keep your mouth shut. That's it. That literally all you have to do is just keep your mouth shut. I don't even give a shit that they're bad at it. I get upset when they're bad at it, but someone's still dead at the end of it. Yes. Yes. That's the thing that pisses me off. Yes. It's fucked up that it's okay. Not okay, but like it's more palatable to us. Like if they get away with it, then it's like, okay. But yeah. Uh, Yeah. It is kind of fucked up. We're kind of fucked up. I get it. It's fine. That's why we we get on the way we do, Amy. (laughs) We're equal amounts of fucked up. Two peas in a fucked up pod. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I love that so much. (laughs) That's so accurate. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, fucking amateur hour. She's fucking running her mouth like crazy. Didn't need to do this. Are they believing her or like, no? Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah, because they're like, you're a fucking psycho and you're- yeah dangerous as fuck. All the signs are there. They're like, oh yeah, this tracks. I mean, like not outside the realm of possibility. Also another reason to be childless. Just saying. There you go. Right. <laughs> you know, just saying, throw that out there. Do you, of course, but like, eh. of course, you know, someone has to fucking populate the earth. It's not going to be me. And I can't imagine being a mother to a kid. That's not this fucked up. Oh my God. But the fact that this possibility exists in the mix, I'm like, nah, man, I'm good. I'm good. I don't want to have, I don't want to have the murderer child, please. Thanks. I don't ask for much. I just don't want the murderer child. I don't think that's a lot to ask for. A very simple request. Thank you. Yeah. So in May, 1996, detectives questioned Sharon, who readily admitted to killing Katie four years earlier on June 7th, 1992. Although Sharon gave police three different accounts of the murder, the part that remained consistent in all three versions was that she had been the one to stab Katie repeatedly. In two of the accounts, she was aided by two men, who she named to police. However, when questioned, the two men provided alibis, but they provided alibis for one another. Each other. Mm. Yes. Although the police believe she must have had accomplices, since they couldn't explain how a 12-year-old girl was able to drag Katie, who was 18 and weighed 120 pounds, across the pavement and around a corner— the two men were never charged in conjunction with the crime. And it's just not 120 pounds. It's like dead weight. 120 pounds is wildly different. Yes. To be a bit crass, but like it it is, it weighs really differently. A hundred percent. And I like not completely outside the realm of like maybe a 12 year old, if she were all super hopped up on adrenaline, like maybe, but the odds are very small, I feel like. Right. The other thing to note is she was found three miles away from the club area. Mm -hmm. So they believe that she at some point got either got in somebody's car or was taken into somebody's car. So the idea also that a 12 year old would be driving a car and have access to a car is I feel like less than two older guys having access to a car, Mm. but they provided alibis for one another and yep. Let them off. Yep, I know. Fucking infuriating. 
Despite the various accounts of the murder, police were still confident that Sharon was guilty. She'd been able to describe an injury which hadn't been public information at the time of her confession, and also knew about a bracelet that had been stolen from Katie's body, which, with the exception of Katie's family, only the killer would have known about. Mm. Detective Sergeant Paul Clements, who interviewed Sharon extensively, said, quote, what sticks in my mind about talking to her was the coldness. Mm-hmm. Most people that you interview show some feeling as to why they have done what they have done. But with her, there was a complete absence of emotion and reason, end quote. After 27 hours of police interviews, Sharon Carr was finally charged with Katie's murder four years after the crime had taken place. Then, as if her confession wasn't already enough to convict her, they found her diaries. <gasps> Girl, Amateur hour, but okay. Amateur hour. And they are fucked up for the record. Really fucked up. Yeah, I'll bet. In them, she bragged about the murder, saying, quote, Last night, it occurred to me that killing her did me good. Now I know what I'm capable of, and I will do it again. End quote. While another entry read, quote, I swear I was born to be a murderer. I'm a killer. Killing is my business, and business is good. End quote. What the fuck? 12 years old? 12 years old. So upsetting and disturbing all around. That's so fucked up. Girl, yes. So fucked up. There's no other way to describe it. Sharon also drew pictures of the knife she used to stab Katie and wrote about how killing her had been a quote-unquote turn-on, saying, quote, I enjoyed putting the blade up her. It made me feel powerful. End quote. In another entry, she wrote, quote, every night I see the devil in my dreams, sometimes even in my mirror, but I realize it was just me, end quote, which led to her being nicknamed the devil's daughter. Mm. Her diaries made it clear that not only had Sharon killed Katie, she had enjoyed doing it. In May 1996, Sharon was charged with Katie's murder. Just a few weeks later, on June 7th, she wrote in her diary, respect to Katie Ratcliffe, four years today, end quote. Although she had admitted to murdering Katie, Sharon retracted her confession while in custody, which meant that now the court would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Sharon was guilty. Mm. Sharon Carr's unprecedented trial began in February 1997 in the Winchester Crown Court. Over the course of four weeks, the jury listened to Sharon's verbal confession to police and was shown entries from her diary. Although there was no forensic evidence to tie Sharon to the crime, she knew details of the murder that only the killer could have known. Mm. After only five hours of deliberation, the jury found her guilty and Sharon was convicted of murder on March 25th, 1997. According to witnesses, she was smiling as she left the courtroom after her conviction. Like at her street cred or whatever the fuck bullshit what the fuck yeah so she's not even 18 at this point she's like 16 she's 17 i believe at this point it's fucking nuts fucking nuts dude she's literally still younger than katie was when she was murdered yeah it's fucking insane sharon carr was sentenced to life imprisonment and received a minimum tariff of 14 years imprisonment Although initially incarcerated at HM Prison Holloway, Britain's most notorious prison for women, Sharon proved extremely difficult to manage and attacked other prisoners and staff on several occasions, which led to several transfers between prisons. She was eventually sectioned under the Mental Health Act of 1983 and transferred to Broadmoor Hospital on June 16, 1998. 
where she was eventually diagnosed with having schizoaffective disorder, which is a combination of schizophrenia, a psychosis, and a mood disorder. So along with the delusions, paranoia, and hallucinations that come with schizophrenia, she also had either depression or mania and depression as in bipolar disorder. Hmm. She also apparently began believing that she was a lizard and tried to cut herself in an attempt to find out whether she was still human. I don't know. That was just too weird not to include Monique. Your face. Yes. Well, I mean, I know the uh, the bipolar, the paranoia. Well, I, I don't know which, which type of bipolar, but like paranoia is a big thing. And schizophrenia. Yeah. Paranoia is a big thing. She's a lizard. She's a lizard. Hmm. Okay. Yep. Apparently. Noted. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> Good for you. Okay. While at Broadmoor, Sharon fell in love with and planned to marry another murderer she had met, Robbie Lane. Robbie was known as the mum killer after he killed his mother and gouged her eyes out. <gasps> yep. Yep. That really gets me. Uh-uh. The eye shit? Like, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Yes. No. I think we discussed this. I think it's the trauma from the movie The Phantom. Is that what it was called? Yes. Yes. Ugh, I will never recover from that. It still gets me to this day whenever I think about it. Like, I genuinely can't. Yeah, I get that. I don't know that it was it was The Phantom for me, that that, that scene in The Phantom when he's looking through the, the microscope. But it just, I shit is like, don't, just don't. Don't you know? You know what I think it was for me, honestly. My mother had her retina detachment. She like she had her retina detached. <gasps> she was in labor with me. Uh, the any the like a uh, epidural, whatever the fuck. Well, she didn't. It wasn't epidural because she went on. I don't know. I don't know what the fuck. But basically, her, the pressure went up in her eye, and her retina detached after giving birth to me. So to have it reattached, any eye surgery you have, you have to be awake for. Yeah. So she repeatedly and in grave detail and often when we were eating she would tell us about her fucking retina reattachment surgery <laughs> and how she would see like the thread and the needle just go and they'd be like look this way look that way oh my and god so no, no that's no. what i grew up with no so the phantom wasn't shit for me clearly this is what i was accustomed to listening to so i shit is very fucked up for me that's horrifying it's horrifying that's more disturbing than the phantom to be fair it is yeah by a lot. Uh, no. Just don't fuck with the eyes, guys. Ugh, I'm not going to be over this for a while. That really fucked with me. No, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> so, the two had paid for rings and were due to marry inside the top security hospital. Where the fuck do you get rings in the wedding? In, in, a, in a fucking hospital? I don't know. They knew somebody had somebody. They sell fucking wedding rings at the commissary? They made it in fucking arts and crafts or something. I don't know. It's pipe, pipe cleaners and... And rhinestones, yeah. Pipe cleaners or like macaroni rings. There you go, yeah. <laughs> With googly eyes on them. I would be down for that ring. Yeah, you're like, Johnny, this ring's great. Where the fuck are my googly eyes? <laughs> he would have not been upset about that. He'd be like, I get it. No. Googly eyes. I mean, they were essentially on the the dancing things behind you, so. That's true. I, we put googly eyes on our Roomba and we call him Roomba. Yeah. I love that. Googly eyes were a big thing in um, everything, everywhere, all at once. So we kind of went on a googly eye kick right after that. Still haven't seen it. That hasn't stopped everyone from telling me that they've just seen it and how great it is. Oh God, it's so good. I know. I'm literally like maybe planning to go see it again. We'll see. I'll go with you if you're going to go see it again. Oh, yeah. 
yeah, I have a friend who hasn't seen it and they were like, I kind of want to see it. Do you want to go again? And I was like, yeah, I would go see it again. I'll keep you posted. Yeah, please do. So good. It's so good. (gasps) I know I've heard. I know. And you're going to keep hearing until you go see it, Monique. God damn it. And then I can be part of the conversation telling everyone else it's so good. Yes. One of us. One of us. One of us. (laughs) (laughs) So whatever. They macrame themselves some rings or whatever the fuck they did for these rings. (laughs) However... They called off the wedding after reading a newspaper article about the wedding that contained details of each other's crimes. They were so shocked by what the other had done that they split up immediately. Like, nah, boo. I didn't know you were that fucked up. Right? Like, pot, kettle, hi, you're literally perfect for each other. What the fuck are you doing? I have standards, clearly. Right? Like, this is a little much for me. The eye gouging, like, no. It's like, have you seen the movie The Phantom? Because I have, like, a thing about (laughs) eye stuff. (laughs) I can't. Sorry. Killing your mom is above board, but, like, the eye shit. You crossed a line. Yeah. That's a deal breaker for me. Clearly. Jason. Sorry. Like, it was a deal breaker for her. But, yeah, I thought that was very, uh, very funny, very ironic. Of course. But also not surprising. Yeah. Also... That should be your reaction when you read that somebody has done something like that. You should be like, oh, this is not a person I want to spend the rest of my life with. That's horrifying. Right. Of course not. But you would think maybe she'd be like, oh, we can do like some Joker Harley Quinn bullshit. Just terrorize people. You'd think. But no. No. It's a one-woman show. She's not having it. Your eye gouging. Get out of here. It kind of reminds me of the scene in the Little Shop of Horrors movie where Steve Martin is this like sadistic dentist and then they wrote in a scene just for the movie because of course they did with Bill Murray comes in and he's like really into like just being tortured. Yes. And Steve Martin is not into it because the whole thing he is like. He hates it. Yeah. He hates it. And then, like when he finally like throws him out, he's like We're fucking sicko. He doesn't say fucking because it's like a PG movie, but he's like sicko. That's just, this is reminding me of. That's actually perfect. Yes. That's, yes. <laughs> I love that scene so much. It's so funny. It's so good. Sharon remained at Broadmoor Hospital until Broadmoor changed from being a mixed-sex hospital to male only. Mm. Then she was moved to a different secure hospital in London. In 2007, Sharon was moved again to the medium security orchard unit, but was sent to HM Prison Bronzefield in 2015 as a restricted status prisoner as she was presenting a risk to patients and staff. Mm. In December 2018, she was again moved to HM Prison Low Newton, but was moved back to Bronzefield after a violent incident with another inmate in August 2019. Although she tried getting her restricted status downgraded, prison supervisors at Bronzefield reported that Sharon was still evidencing incidents of volatile relationships and was continuing to have paranoid thoughts and had expressed a desire to murder another prisoner. So, Jesus Christ. Yeah, obviously her request was denied. No, you're good. Thanks. No. As of March 2020, the now 40-year-old Sharon Carr continues to be in prison despite the expiration of her minimum tariff. Though it's been 23 years since Sharon's trial, she is still seen as a danger to the British public and is likely to remain imprisoned for the rest of her life. She remains the youngest murderess in British criminal history. Mm. And that is the story of the murder of Katie Ratcliffe and Britain's youngest female murderer, Sharon Louise Carr. That is so fucked up. So fucked up. Thanks, Johnny, for introducing me to this fucked up story. I was not prepared. Of course. I'm not surprised at all. Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah. 12 years old. Straight up just like randomly murdered an 18-year-old. I will never get over this. I would love to know what her mother thinks. That's a very good question. I didn't really hear like or read anything from her family at all. Right. After she was convicted or after she was caught even. Like there are no quotes from that. Nothing. Because her mother was obviously violent and a fucking psycho. Yeah. She fried a man. So I wonder if she would be like... I don't know how this could happen. Yeah. Or is it like... That's my girl. Yeah. Fuck him. That's my girl. Yeah. I don't know. But super fucked up. I cannot imagine a 12-year-old murdering anyone. No. Let alone a stranger. I just... It does not compute with my brain. My nephew is 12 at the end of the year, and I can't imagine that. No. Because one, no one should be murdering anyone. Hot take. Two... Especially not 12-year-olds murdering anyone. Facts. Children shouldn't be doing it. Facts. It's just so crazy to me. And the fact that, like, it was so brutal, they literally just were like, I mean, a man had to have done this. There's no other possibility. Yeah. Insanity. That's fucking nuts. I know. So sad. Yeah. Katie Radcliffe did not deserve that. She had her whole life ahead of her and just fucking... For sure. She just want to have a nice night out. Yes. And then some fucking psycho 12-year-old. I, I, can't, I can't even wrap my head around this fucking story. This is one of those that's going to, like, marinate in there. Girl. In the old noggin for a few days. Yes. Insane. I feel sorry for anyone who comes into the bar in the next couple days because this is what I'm going to talk to you about. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. I love that. I love horrifying facts. <laughs> Well, even though the story is horrifying, thanks so much for it. That was cra- I'd never heard of this before. I hadn't either. And it was so crazy that I was like, I can't believe I haven't heard about this before. Yeah. It's fucking nuts. Yes. But thank you. And thank you for your story, stories, because again, you're amazing. And I fucking got two for one today. <laughs> you're amazing. Yeah, it was a BOGO. Buy one, get one, baby. <laughs> BOGO paranormal story. Fuck yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm here for it. I love it. I love you so much. Congratulations. Thank you. I love you so much. Uh, We're going to have another fucking horror podcast wedding, babies. Hell yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh my God. I'm so excited. I'm so happy for you. I love you so much. Uh, You deserve every happiness in the world. And I'm so happy for you. Thank you. Of course. Guys, we're so obsessed with you. Thank you so much for listening. If you don't already follow us on the gram, you can find the show, Another Fucking Horror Podcast, at Another Fucking Horror Podcast. You can find me, Monique Sanchez, at Pin Up Girl Mo. You can find me, Amy Traden, at Lobotomy, and that's Lobot, period, Amy. Every sixth episode, we do a True Listener Tales episode where we read you your crazy stories. So if you have any stories, or if you just want to say hi, email us at anotherfuckinghorrorpodcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. As always, keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.